Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to be in John's Gospel, the seventh chapter. As we dig into this text, I want to welcome you as we study God's Word together. If you've been a part of the Grasping Scripture podcast in the past or have been following along each week in our studies, then it's great to have you back. But if you're new, I'm glad to have you join us as we delve into God's Word and seek to truly grasp hold of Scripture, its meaning, and how it applies to our lives. So thanks for joining us. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer as we begin to look at His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we turn to you in this time, asking you to give us ears to hear your voice and giving us a heart that is sensitive to your spirit. Lord, that as we study these words, that they not just be words of history or, or words of, of antiquity that we revere, but Father, that they would be your voice speaking to us, just as they did to those that heard it in that day. Lord, as we see Jesus revealed in your word, Lord, we pray that we would follow him with every part of our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, in John chapter 7, um, we see another festival event. We've just come off of events that were related to the Passover time in Jewish history, but now in chapter 7, it's kind of moved forward six months to the Festival of Shelters. Now, this was a, a seven-day festival that took place. Uh, Jewish men were expected to travel to Jerusalem and to stay in temporary shelters for that week. And it, again, it was six months after Passover. It was a celebration of the harvest and a prayer for future harvest, kind of a, uh, you know, acknowledging God has provided and we look to him to provide in the future. It was reflective of the Exodus period and the wandering in the wilderness and the people living in temporary shelters, tents out in the wilderness. It was all meant to come into play with that. And a big aspect of this festival was water. For the seven days of this festival, water was poured over the altering following some Levitical mandates as an offering unto God. And then on the last day of the festival, seven times water is poured over the altar. And there is some singing by the Levites, and we'll get to that when we hit it in the passage. Um, all of this had significant meaning. All of it reflected back to the Exodus, as did the Passover, by the way. Jesus teaching in Jerusalem at this point ties himself in with everything this festival points towards. And as you might imagine, there's a little conflict that arises from that. Let's look at the passages. In the seventh chapter, it says this, after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. 
You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, they were goading him at this point. They were teasing him. And you may say, that's awful. Well, that's brothers. I know he's Jesus. He's God in the flesh, but these are also his brothers. Um, one of these brothers, James, uh, winds up becoming a follower and serving as the pastor at the Church of Jerusalem till his martyrdom. Uh, one of his other brothers, Jude, uh, wrote one of the books you may have seen in the New Testament. Uh, you know, they, many of his family members, his, his brothers, half-brothers, if you want to be literal about it, um, did come to faith and follow him. But at this point, um, they didn't. And they were teasing him. They were goading him about going to Jerusalem. So that that's what's happening here. Then we get to verse 6. Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go. But you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to the festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. Now, he remained in Galilee for a short time. He does go to the festival. He can't go to the festival publicly. He can't be a spectacle about it. And going with his brothers would make him just that. So he sends them on ahead. You guys go. I can't do it right now. You guys go. And so they do. And that's where we are when we hit verse 10. Verse 10 picks up with Jesus teaching openly at the temple. And, well, obviously he's in Jerusalem for that to happen. He does go to Jerusalem. So we'll take a look at that. In verse 10, it says, But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. It's kind of sad. All these people that wanted to acknowledge him as Messiah and yet were too scared to do so. Hmm. Verse 14. Then, midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teachings or whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But the person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. So his response wasn't just to the people gathered there. It was to the religious leaders, and they were after him. And he's pointing out the defect of their heart at this point. And by that, I mean, he's pointing out their sin. 
They claim to be experts in the law. They claim to be the ones that not only uphold the law of Moses, but follow it perfectly. And yet they are orchestrating a campaign to arrest and kill Jesus for no other reason than he is a threat to their power. There's a problem there. They, in their hearts, are violating the premise of the law of Moses that they claim to follow. And so he's able to say, Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. Um, Now, Jesus is at the temple. He's teaching. The religious leaders are there. They hear it. This is how they respond. There's also a crowd there that is hearing it. This crowd that wasn't sure, is he a good man? Is he nothing but a fraud that deceives people? And no one really wants to speak favorably because they're scared of the religious authorities. Into that mix walks Jesus. Jesus doesn't always come into the uh, most favorable parts of our lives or our situations. He finds us where we are in our brokenness. The question is, when we encounter Jesus in our lives, how do we respond? If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, then you responded in faith to him, placing your trust in him. But for those that don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, my question to you would be, how will you respond when you encounter Jesus? You don't get to pick the time and the place. It's when in your heart you realize your sin and your need for a Savior, and you encounter Jesus, how will you respond? Will you turn to him for life and salvation, or will you turn away from him and live under the cloud of death that your sin brings? My hope is you'll turn to him, not harden your heart but that you will embrace your brokenness and lay it at the feet of Jesus, seeking forgiveness, seeking to be made whole. But the truth is, many, when confronted with Jesus, are just like the Pharisees. And they seek some way to kill him, to remove him from their lives so they don't have to deal with it. Don't try to hide from God. Accept his generous offer of salvation, of eternal life, of a right relationship with the creator that loves you and created you to be in relationship with him. Turn to him. Now we see the response of the crowd. That that crack about you're trying to kill me was mostly directed to religious leaders, but there's a crowd there. Here's their response in verse 20. The crowd replied, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Which is first century Palestine Jewish speak for you're crazy. Nobody's trying to kill you. You know, you're, wow. Um, So you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath, too, when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. 
For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it, so as not to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. What Jesus is doing there is using actually a a tool of teaching or argument that the rabbis excelled in. They often, in rabbinical tradition, argued from a lesser to a greater. If you could establish something of lesser importance as being true, then you could use that as a justification for something of greater importance. And so Jesus points to the law of Moses and the practice of circumcision, going, you know, you're mad because I healed somebody on the Sabbath. And the truth is, that's why they, that's what started them trying to kill him. Go back and read chapter six, if you missed that part. Now, he's saying, look, circumcision has to be done on the eighth day to be in compliance with the law. You look at it, and if the eighth day happens to fall on a Sabbath, what do you do? Say, uh, we'll push it to nine? No. You go ahead and do it on the Sabbath because it is a religious work. It is something um, pleasing to God. It is something that is okay to do on the Sabbath because of its nature. If circumcision is okay to violate the Sabbath for, then how could healing someone who has been lame for, what was it, 38 years, 36 years? I'd have to go back and look. 30-some-odd years. How is healing him a violation of the law if circumcision is not a violation of the law? And that's his argument. Again, he's arguing from a very rabbinic tradition in the way he's approaching it. And so he says, so why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. In other words, it's not all about the letter of the law. Look at the intent of the law and then discern. Look at the why and then discern. Judge correctly. Well, we move into chapter, not chapter, to verse 25. And here things take a little bit of a turn. 25 says, Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? But here he is, speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe he is the Messiah? But how could that be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. Now that's the crowds talking, and they're starting to murmur about their religious leaders, going, hey, do they think he's the Messiah? Of course, that's a nightmare to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. Um, They don't want to hear that. And then the people start to dismiss the idea, you know, is he the Messiah? Uh, No, no, he can't be the Messiah. How could he be? For we know where this guy comes from. You know, he's from Galilee. The Messiah is just going to appear. Well, Scripture doesn't say the Messiah is just going to appear. That was their expectation of the Messiah. That's important. Our expectations are things that we develop. 
we like to assume that our expectations line up with Scripture. The truth is, I think our expectations may rarely line up with Scripture. We decide how things aren't ought to be and or ought not to be. And in that regard, we are on dangerous ground. Because when we start deciding how things ought to be or ought not to be, we are trying to assert ourselves once again as God in our lives, or worse yet, in the lives of others. I have experienced it in my own life. I have counseled with couples and individuals who have struggled with strained relationships because expectations were not met. Sometimes even worse than just expectations, unspoken expectations were not met. Because there's the assumption, well, everybody knows this. Well, everybody knows that this is what's supposed to be done, or this is the way it's supposed to happen. Well, no, everybody doesn't know that. And even though you think you know that, you could be, I know, revelation here, you could be wrong. We must constantly, as followers of Christ, we must constantly submit ourselves to Scripture, to God's Word, to what He says. It's important. And our expectations need to be shaped by God's Word. And not other things. I almost want to say not any other things. If we can get our expectations in life in line with God's word, then it all falls into place. So what are your expectations? And are they in line with God's word? Here the crowd was looking at the Messiah. They were flirting with the idea. Hey, do you think the religious leaders might think this guy's the Messiah? I wonder if that could be. No, can't be because the Messiah is just going to show up from nowhere. He's just going to appear. Again, not a biblical expectation. Therefore, they felt comfortable in dismissing Jesus as the Messiah. Because he didn't fit their expectation that was a false expectation. Hmm. Let's keep going. Verse 28. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I came from. See, he knows what they were saying. You know where I came from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. But I know him, because I come from him. And he sent me to you. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. But why did they try to arrest him at that? Because he was declaring he was sent from God. And that was basically blasphemous in their eyes. He was claiming to be a prophet or claiming to be the Messiah, uh, not flat out stating it, but the intent of what he was saying carried that message to the religious leaders. And so they tried to arrest him. 
but no one could lay a hand on him. Why? Because it wasn't the right time. Every attempt at arrest, even the arrest in the garden, the trial, the crucifixion, you see every step along the way. It is about God's timing, and Jesus is in control of the situation every step of the way. Look for it. You'll see it. When we read about those events in Scripture, it's Jesus that's in control. It's not the crowd. It's not the religious leaders. It's not the Romans. It's not... Jesus is actually in control. You say, then he could have changed it anywhere along the way. Yeah, he could have. But then he wouldn't have been obeying God. I'll refer you back to the prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane if you want to dig into that a little more. So, his time had not come. Many among, verse 31, many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? So many were coming to faith and they were doing it based on the fact of what Jesus had done, the miraculous signs going, that's Messiah stuff. Would you expect the Messiah to have done more than that? Then, you know, and they were using that as the springboard, but they were coming to faith. They were believing in him. Verse 32, when the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priest sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. You know, because it worked so well the last time. But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me. And you cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Well, where is he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me but not find me? You cannot go where I'm going. They were stymied. And their expressions there are basically saying, maybe he's going to the Gentiles. Because we certainly, as good Pharisees, are not going to go to the Gentile realm to look for him. You know, that's their assessment. Huh. Interestingly enough, after the crucifixion, when we're dealing with the message of the gospel, it does, in fact, go to the Gentile realms. Um, hmm. But anyway, that's not what this is talking about specifically. Uh, Jesus obviously is talking about his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and they don't get it. They don't have a frame of reference for it. Even the Messiah they were looking for, they were looking for this religious and military and political leader that would liberate them from the oppression of Rome and reestablish the the israelite empire you know like david's reign and solomon's reign type of thing um this is not what they were looking for this was so completely out of context for them they didn't understand it basically their expectations were just as messed up as the expectations of the crowd so they couldn't hear what jesus was saying in a way that they understood Fortunately, we have perspective, and we can look back on these events 
And we can realize Jesus is talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And aren't you grateful for that? That he did that to save us? Now, as we look at 37 and on, we are now dealing with this. You know, he's been in the temple teaching. I told you the the festival of, of um, oh, wow. I just draw a blank on this. How could I do that? Uh, shelters. Yeah, the festival of shelters. <laughs> wow. Um, this festival of shelters that was going on, part of it was this outpouring of water on the altar. And it had significant meaning. It had history to it. And it was acknowledging God's provision of water and expressing a trust in God and a prayer to God that there would be water provided in the coming year for the crops. Because this is a time of harvest. Crops are on the brain. The provision of God is also on the brain. So we get to verse 31. As Jesus is teaching in the temple, these outpourings of water are going on. In fact, on the last day, it happened seven times. Now, verse 37, that's the context. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink for the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is a prophet we've, or the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others, but he can't be. With the, with the Messiah, will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah shall be born in the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. Now, obviously, they don't know Jesus' background. They just knew he grew up in Nazareth, so he's from Galilee, not where was he born. Some, verse 44, some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. Have you been led astray too, a Pharisee mocked? Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, remember him, chapter 3? Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? He asked. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. See, they were confident in their knowledge. They were resting in this idea that they knew better. Even the dismissing of the crowds. Oh, you know, we know better, but they're a bunch of ignorant 
people. They they don't have a clue. So of course they might believe, but us, we're we're too smart for that type of an attitude. And even this this haughtiness, you know, the foolish crowd follows him. They're ignorant of God's law. Curse on them. But, you know, we, is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees that would follow him, that would believe him? Well, Nicodemus doesn't make a bold stand here, but he does make a stand. And we see later when the crucifixion happens, Nicodemus takes a bold stand. So, yeah, some of them did believe. There were believers among the Pharisees. There were believers among the Sanhedrin. It's not just a foolish, ignorant crowd. They were so confident in their assumptions about what was going on that they missed the reality of it. Now, when Jesus stood up and declared that he was the living water, He says, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. That's what Jesus is telling them. They could turn to him. And that living water is the spirit being poured out. Now, why is that relevant? Again, the offering of the water. The climax of the festival on the last day is the the seven pourings out as offering on the altar of water. And while that is happening, the Levites would be singing. And you know what they would be singing? They would be singing Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which reads, With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. That's what the crowd would have been hearing the Levites say when Jesus stands up and says, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Jesus is declaring that he is salvation. And that we find our joy in him. That's what he was saying to them as they gathered in Jerusalem at the temple for the festival of shelters. That is what he is saying to you and to me today. If you have found your salvation in Jesus, take joy in that because you are experiencing those rivers of living water that bring life and salvation, the gift of God poured out for you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior and Lord, then this is where you will find salvation in Him. We are all sinners. We have all rebelled against God in our hearts, sought to be God in our own lives. And that has broken our relationship with a creator that loves us and that created us for relationship with him. But there is a way to fix it. Our broken relationship separates us from God, separates us from 
Christ separates us from the source of life. And so the only real outcome there is death, not just physical death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God and the torment that that brings. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. You see, God demonstrates his love for us this way. When we were still sinners, when we didn't care about God, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would he do that? Because it is God demonstrating his love for us. He provides a way of salvation, a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice to pay that death penalty that's on our heads due to sin and to pay it in a way that means we don't have to anymore because Christ paid it for us. But he didn't just die. He rose again, showing there is life. There is victory over death. There is life eternal. Because when that relationship is restored, we are reconnected with the source of life. With Christ. That is the offer of salvation. That is what it is to come and drink of those living waters because our souls are thirsty for salvation. Do you need to turn to God now for the salvation that he offers? Call on the name of Christ and be saved. Turn your sins over to him. Seek his forgiveness. He's paid the price. Seek his forgiveness. Accept his sacrifice on your behalf. And walk in a relationship with him. Because rivers of living water flow from his heart. Rivers of living water. Not a little bit. Not just for a time but for all time. And remember, with joy, you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of salvation. We thank you for the opportunity to know you as Savior and Lord. Lord, we thank you for Christ that he is the way of salvation, that you came in the flesh and dwelt among us, that you took care of the price of our sin, and that you offer us this living water, this salvation, that we may accept, that we may take hold of it and experience the joy of salvation. We thank you, Father, for this awesome gift in Jesus. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.